Eleven months after Lionel Messi lifted the World Cup into the sky of Qatar, Argentina made again the global headlines. For the first time ever, a self-described libertarian became a president in a country. Javier Milei won the elections shouting from the rooftops that he stands on the free market principles of Hayek, of Mises, of Rothbard and of Milton Friedman. But Millet has also mentioned Ayn Rand as one of his influences. So, is there a link between the ideas of Ayn Rand and the new president of Argentina? This is New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute, and with me today, Ben and Agustina. So, Agustina, the first question is, how did the country, known for its statist and socialist political tradition, elect someone like Millet? So there's there's a lot to say there. It's an issue also of not so much voting for the ideas of freedom themselves, but voting against other really bad ideas. Uh, but like on a personal note, I say I, I'm Argentinian. I lived there all my life, moved to the United States six years ago. I still go there every year, sometimes a couple times a year. I have friends and family there. The results of this election is really encouraging for this rejection of the of Peronismo, this uh, ideology, political ideology and worldview that has been dominating in Argentina culturally for many decades. And I'm really, really happy about that. And there is a lot to criticize about Millet, the, the candidate that was actually elected, and we will discuss a lot of that today. But I'll say that personally, he's the first ever candidate for the presidency or anything else really in Argentina that has an you know apparent freedom adjacent view. I mean, someone that actually has a big influence. I've seen, you know, smaller libertarian parties or liberal part like classic liberal parties, but they didn't have any influence in the culture. He's also, I think, much more intellectual than any candidate that I've seen in Argentina. He takes ideas really seriously, it seems. I read quite a bit from him. I listened him, to him talk. Um, whether those ideas are right or wrong, we will discuss that in a moment, but he takes them very seriously. And he's been painted by the left in Argentina, but also worldwide as this absolute monster. And I really don't think there is evidence to say that, you know, that there's a reason to to say that uh, actual evidence of him being that bad. Uh, but the left is going insane over he, the fact that he was elected, both in Argentina and abroad. So I, I just wanted to clarify that. But um, I really hope that he can, you know, put the best ideas out there because he has, he's mixed. He's not the, you know, he's not a John Galt or a, or a Howard Rock like I've seen some people claim, right? So if this, if his bad size, his bad ideas take over, it can be, it can be a problem. So tell us also um, something about the political history in Argentina, because the way I understand it, Argentina, at least for the last eight years, was between two very, very bad political options. The one was what you call Peronism, the ideology of uh, Peron, who was leading the country after World War. And it was a mix of socialism, nationalism, and then some horrendous, brutal, thuggish, anti-communist, dictatorial regimes. So what was the effect of these policies on uh, Argentina, a country that at the beginning of the 20th century was proudly one of the most developed countries in the world on par with uh, the United States. Yeah, so it's been a battle between collective, different, like collectivism from the right, collectivism from the, right, from the left, but always collectivism in Argentina, right? So yes, Argentina used to be like a very, very prosperous country. One of the most prosperous before World War I. It was called the Paris of Latin America because it was very intellectual, very rich. I mean, Paris, let's think Paris, you know, in the Belle Epoque, right? Many, many years ago. And Argentina's founding ideals were actually pretty, or were influenced by American founding ideas. Juan Bautista Alberdi, one of Argentina's founding fathers, um, 
copied many of uh, many elements of the American constitutions. A constitution implemented them in the Argentine constitution, right? But what happened after uh, collectivism became bigger, socialism became a thing, fascism took over Argentina, and these good even like the good principles in the constitution or in the original constitution, the 1853 constitution were modified by constitutional amendments and a lot of other things that did not belong there were added to it. But the destruction of these ideas, I think, was mainly taken, uh, mainly committed by, by Juan Domingo Perón. Most people probably would be familiar, even if they're not really familiar with Argentinian politics, with who this character is. He was elected in uh, 1946, but the decline started a bit earlier with Hippolyte Rigogen in the uh, in 19 uh, in 1916. So, but Peron transformed Argentina completely to this you know altruist collectivist philosophy. Government was involved in absolutely everything. The size of government grew a lot, and the indoctrination coming from from the government was absolutely massive in schools uh, like for instance you would have books that said like kids were learning to read by saying eva peron loves me like that's what the book said uh dissent was not tolerated i have this story like my grandpa was an avid peron uh he was opposed to peron and when eva peron died he uh it was mandatory that people be mourning so people had to wear black. So he was forced to wear a black tie to work. And because he refused to do that, he wore a red tie instead because he was he was very opposed to Peron. Uh, he, there was order from government for any employee from any company that uh, did not wear the black tie or did, was not seen in mourning, they should be fired. And my grandpa was fired from his job because this this mourning period was mandatory and he was threatened to go to jail because of that to be in prison for for a short time but those were some of the penalties right so all these ideas were like just took over in argentina uh redistribution of wealth became huge with peron uh you know everybody's needs is a claim on your income and your time this famous phrase by eva peron where there's a need there's a right or where there's a need a right is born like you know, every need is a right. So what happened, fast forward to today, after many variants of Peronismo, uh, then uh, other governments like Alfonsín's government, not Peronista, but Radi uh, Unión Cívica Radical is the name, uh, when uh, democracy was restored after the, the dictatorship that you, that you mentioned, because today Argentina is one of the poorest countries in, in America over 40% of the population lives in poverty. And some people estimate that it's actually, that number is about 50%. We have right now, so far, 140% uh, annual inflation rate. There's still time though, uh, to get worse. So like for context, the US annual inflation is 3.5. So, and we are all in the US, you know, upset about it and going a little bit crazy about it with reason, but imagine what is what 140% means. But this is not because Argentina lacks resources. Like I said, Argentina, because of everything that it has in terms of natural resources, has, is, 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 used to be very rich. So it has tremendous natural resources, oil, gas, minerals, uh, third uh, lithium reserve in the world. The agriculture in Argentina is massive. Bad ideas is what turned Argentina so poor. And that is that is one of the saddest things about Argentinian history. And so quite often from this show, we mentioned that ideas have consequences and ideas move history. And this is not a discussion for like academic conferences. This is about our lives. I come from Greece, a country with a similar political trajectory with Argentina. And I know what it means to be governed by this type of people. It means that you have to leave your country. It means that you see your friends immigrating or staying with their parents till their, till their 30s. I know what it means to have closed banks and capital controls, as we've seen often in Argentina. I remember, for example, when Greece had capital controls, how many people 
suffered or even smaller things. Like I remember my parents couldn't fly to the UK for my PhD, for, for my, for, for my, for my PhD celebration. So it's ideas have very, very, very real consequences. And so that's, that's, and we see this with Argentina with good ideas, one of the top five countries in the world with bad ideas to today, when it comes to GDP, it's somewhere in a hundred and fifty something place. And when it comes to economic freedom, it's in a hundred and forty fourth place. So in this bleak environment, here comes Millet. So who wants to tell us a bit about uh, who this guy is and what we should expect from him? Before you say something about that, can I just add one thing about uh, from the perspective of the American context? Because, Augustina, I think that the history you just gave us will come as a surprise and uh, news to a lot of Americans when Americans think about Perón, if they know anything about him at all, which they usually don't, um, it's that he was married to Evita and Madonna uh, portrayed her in a movie and sings some pretty songs. And so Peronism is associated with a kind of glamour, but what they don't know uh, is that it, it was powered by a, a set of ideas that were influenced by some of the worst collectivist regimes of, of Europe in the 20th century. So Peronism is inherited in part from Italian fascism and in part from socialism. It's a kind of mix of the, of the worst of both. And, it, it's, and this had dramatic consequences for the country. And when you, when you go to Argentina, you, you see a country that doesn't look like the glamour that we see in the movies. It, it, it looks like a country that's falling apart. It looks like it is uh, you know, basically a hundred, a city that was once prosperous and wealthy a hundred years ago that has is, that is fallen into decay in Buenos Aires. And you see these you know, statues and murals of Evita and Perón that make it clear this is just like this regime was just like one of the cults of personality uh, that we associate with with Stalin and Hitler. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you yeah, you can see the kind of like the shell of what used to be Argentina, these in beautiful buildings, great architecture from before Argentina started declining. Uh, but I think it's also worth saying the last 20 years, especially, were so obscenely and insanely bad that what happened in this election was people finally decided to oust this government, uh, governing party, Kirchnerismo, a, a faction of Peronismo, that really put Argentina in this misery. They governed for the last 20 years, with the exception of 2015 to 2019, where a different uh, government had a chance and didn't really take advantage of it and we ended up a little bit worse a lot to say about this particular government corruption extreme regulations price controls uh, uh issues with freedom of expression a lot of things argentina was headed to become venezuela and so it is important that people rejected this family because peronismo hadn't been massively rejected like this um ever it's over 55% of people voted against it, right? And why is this? I mean, people can think, okay, well, obviously, if, if things are so bad, obviously, they voted against it. Well, this is essentially what people have always known. And the only viable alternative that they have seen that kind of works, quote, unquote, right? Um, it's and there's like this, this saying in Argentina, no other party can govern Argentina, because uh, no other party has successfully ever governed Argentina since the the return to uh, to to democracy in the in the 80s, because uh, Peronismo holds so much power, including with violent factions and organizations and unions and social social organizations and things like that, that make governing impossible in Argentina when they are not in power. You can see uh, Macri in in uh, 2015 very hard for him to govern. De La Rua in 2001 that ended up leaving in a helicopter, not saying he was competent at all or Magri, right? But the, they uh, they instituted like this massive protest to out him, and this was all the Peronismo's doing. So that we had this red length introduction before we even talk about Millet, because this shows 
why Sunday was a historic moment. Again, we don't know what will happen, but what we do know at the moment is that history was made on Sunday by the mere fact that someone with so different ideas to the political tradition in Argentina came to power with 55%. So who is this Javier Millet and someone with, uh, inspired by the ideas that we are inspired? Should we look uh, forward to good things from this guy? So, Agustina, you know more about uh, Millet. Tell us a bit about him. So Millet is an, an economist, an university professor, and very briefly, right, he became popular around 2013 because he, he started going on TV talking about um, the left and these radical libertarian ideas and free market ideas. And he became known because, partly because of, because he had these like explosive outbursts talking about the left. There's like this viral video going on Twitter, in American Twitter of him saying a lot of things uh, with a lot of insults. Like, I'm not going to repeat them here, but about the left uh, and how the left is absolute and leftists are absolutely awful. Um, so he became popular that way. He wrote books, he wrote papers. Uh, and then later he became a congressman in 2021. And, the, and he kept like this kind of like public persona going to TV shows doing all this. By the way, back then they used to laugh at him like, oh my God, this clown will never amount to anything. I mean, here, here he is as a president-elect, right? But that's how he became popular. Um, and it's... Uh, his attacks on the left mostly is what brought attention to him. What I find very interesting with Millet, besides the stuff that you, that you mentioned, is that he came to these ideas, to the ideas of the free markets, relatively late in his life. So from what I understand, it's been in the last 10 years that he, dis that he discovered these radical ideas. And one thing that I give to him, the one thing that I, I find quite praiseworthy, is his intellectual curiosity. And I think, Agustina, you mentioned that uh, he said at some point in his book, and I've heard it also from elsewhere, so it must be true, that he said to himself, everything I knew and everything I was teaching is wrong. So he speaks about him discovering the principles of the free market, compared to, let's say, the classic neoclassical economics that he was adhering to. So this is not easy for someone to say, to openly say, I was wrong throughout my whole life and saying this in his, uh, in his 40s. So I, I, that's quite unusual for politicians who are usually very, very intellectually not, uh, not curious. So, what, uh, so how did he view, though, this uh, light, Agustina? So when he says, I found the light... What ideas does he refer to? So what he says in his book, um, I haven't seen it available in English. It's called uh, something like The Road of a Libertarian or something like that. I think parallel to The Road to Seraphim, I, I assume. Um, he says that after he read uh, Rothbard, he was reading a chapter of Man, Economy, and the State. He read it in, in one afternoon. He says he sat down there and said, and thought to himself, everything I've been teaching my students, because he's a university professor, everything I've been teaching my students for the last 20 years is wrong. And I, I, it's just wrong. I need to rectify that. So I think he's, I haven't heard a politician say something like that. Um, it, it takes, I think, some intellectual honesty if, if that is effectively what happened. And he publishes it in his book. So I think it might have happened. Yeah. So, Augustine, you mentioned before. You mentioned before, Augustine, that, that he said this when he read Mises. So we heard two different versions, but they agree on 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 the main, which is that this guy is still open to changing his mind. So let's keep this in mind for later when we hope when we'll find things that we think that he should further change his mind. Ben. Well, yes, especially because of the fact that the ideas he's so intellectually curious about are a mixture of good things and bad things. And I think you see that with the, the story about Rothbard. And we'll come back to talking about Rothbard and uh, why it's problematic that this is who inspired him. But I did want to say, before we get to that, that it's, it is important that he's, he's intellectually curious and serious and it does give one hope that he could 
change even better, uh, even further for the better. Uh, and this is one of the ways in which I think the mainstream coverage of the Argentinian election, uh, at least in the United States, is is way off. What what they're doing is comparing him to Trump, and there is a similarity in that they're both outspoken and bombastic and have a certain kind of populist appeal. But if you if you read or listen to anything that that uh, Millet says for more than five minutes, you quickly realize there's some big, deeper differences that he's, uh, he's an intellectual, that he is, uh, that he's serious about ideas, that a number of us read this lengthy interview of him uh, with The Economist magazine from the UK that came out recently and goes on and on. And he can quote chapter and verse from different economists and has numbers at his at the tip of his tongue. And I mean, this is nothing like Trump, who has no ideas, and who only has bombast, uh, and only has you know, hatred for the left. So there are some important differences here. And so what we need to talk about in the rest of the show today is what are those ideas that Millet is interested in that has that have shaped him? Uh, and what in particular, uh, do they have to do with Ayn Rand? Because as, as you mentioned before, Augustina, he's been known to quote her. And so people will wonder, is this, is this some kind of Ayn Rand moment uh, in Argentina? And I mean, we don't have any inside information about this. All we have are the public statements that he's released. And I think those are what we should start to look at now. So uh, Augustina, what can you tell us about what Millet said about Ayn Rand, how he's referenced her over the years? So he would mention her a lot in interviews and he's again he's appeared on tv so like hundreds of times and again he mentions her sometimes on her own sometimes along the names of other intellectuals um he mentions her on like interviews like written interviews in uh in his books as well and on twitter one of the things that in his book this book that i mentioned earlier the road of a libertarian he says he he names her as one of his influences he says and i quote from the book this is my translation by the way i don't think the book is actually translated to english uh we move forward we meaning i think libertarians with the starting point of the teachings of giants of liberty like menger like von bauer like mrs like hayek like rothbard like friedman like kind rand like nozick and what's brilliantly summarized by israel kirchner it's not enough for the system to be superior quantitatively because if it were unjust, none of this would be worth it. That's why we want to tell you that liberalism, libertarianism, is not only more productive, it's the only just system. So he is quoting explicitly Rand as one of the influences that he that he has as, as a libertarian. And this is also true uh, because Atra Shrugged seems to have really influenced his way of thinking about production in terms of the producers of the world that are sustaining the non-producers and that are sustaining a big government that is acting against their interest. Um, so, and, and we can explore the, the Atra Shrugged uh, connection uh, a little more. Um, but like while he quotes her, like he has said, and again, we'll discuss a bit later, but he doesn't agree with everything that Rand has to say. And of course, if she packs together uh, Rothbard with, with Rand, that seems pretty obvious. But the media is and has been for the last couple of years, putting him like really together with Ayn Rand. And I think that is part of this bigger trend of you know, packing Rand together with libertarians. And you know how people say, Ayn Rand is one of the, the, is the queen of libertarianism. Well, she's not, but that is kind of like this common view that exists. So they put Millet as like one of the exponents of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Um, and this broader trend of anyone that is, that claims to be pro-freedom, just packing them together with, with Ayn, Rand, Ayn Rand. But um, another thing he that Millet does is he, quotes um, Rand in, in his Twitter. I don't know if you want to go uh, ahead and uh, and we can discuss that, Ben, Nikos. 
Yeah, let's let's see his tweet about Atlas Shrugged because I see some uh, interesting parallels in his. So we're gonna we're gonna come back to that on a bit when we're gonna talk about his views on abortion. But let's see the other one about the if we have it. So this one. So he talks about the Atlas Rebellion and he talks about the difference between those who produce and those who produce nothing but exploit those who produce. So here are three ideas that are present in the narrative of Millet, which one can see links to the ideas of Ayn Rand. The one, the first and the most interesting, Agustina has already uh, mentioned it, is that Millet will not tell you that capitalism and freedom are good because they bring the GDP up by 2%, which is the usual boring uh, line that many classical liberals have. Yes, it does raise the GDP, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that it's a just system and that it's a fair system. So if you, if you go back to 2019, when Millet had an interesting TEDx talk, he talks about how he fell in love with liberty. And he says, initially I fell in love because I saw the reverse uh, hockey stick and the GDP going up. But then this love deepened because I saw that the system which is fair, I saw that it's a system which is just. So this is one point where we see the, the Rand influence. Another interesting point, which is related also to this tweet, is that he understands that the great producers, the creators, the entrepreneurs, the industrialists, the scientists, these are the heroes, the atlases that hold, that lift society up. And he notices the injustice that society goes back to these people and tells them, look, you've produced a lot, you've achieved a lot, therefore now you owe us even more stuff back. And Millet says, this is an injustice. You are punished for your virtues, which is, again, straight out of Ayn Rand. And a third minor point, but which I find interesting because it shows something about his sense of life, to use this term, he talks about the grandeur and the brilliance of the skyscrapers as great achievements of capitalism. And it reminded me that scene when Ayn Rand lands in the United States when she emigrated from Soviet Union and rumor has it that when she saw the skyscrapers, she wept. So these are three points in Millet that shows that his view of the world is definitely impacted by Ayn Rand. And notice that these points are not typical points for every libertarian. So, for example, there are many libertarians who think that uh, modernity and big skyscrapers uh, are not something great. And we have to go back to something more like small is beautiful. Notice that there are many libertarians who will tell you that uh, big, big tech and big business and these business mongols were, you know, they're not uh, people to be admired. But Millet begs to differ from this, uh, from, from the points of one particular uh, corner, let's say, of the libertarian movement. So this is the good Millet. This is Millet where I see some links with and some influence from uh, Atlas uh, Shrugged and from Ayn Rand's uh, work. But Ben, am I getting too excited with Millet? What do you think? Well, I think we before we uh, dig into evaluating him, we still need to give a little bit more evidence of the extent of the influence. And I know we have a clip uh, where he's where he's talking about her. And let's let's play that clip. And Augustina, you may need to give us some context afterwards for what why this is coming up so much. But here's something from here's something we found on TikTok that uh, where he's constantly referencing her. Eh, en un trabajo de Ayn Rand que se llama la ética de la emergencia. Sí. Yo lo que propongo es, miren lo que vengo diciendo. Y estas cosas las dije siempre. En realidad nosotros en ese momento explicábamos desde la visión de Ayn Rand la ética de la emergencia. 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 I can't speak There's Spanish, but I think every day, I know Ayn Rand's what name about. coming up on uh, TV interviews uh, constantly, and yet he's he's referring to this essay of hers, the Ethics of Emergencies. Augustina, why is this coming up in his commentary? Yeah, so the that that video is by the Ayn Rand Center Latin America. When I participated with them, we did a webinar, like a whole session on analyzing what the ethics of emergencies, this essay by Ayn Rand, means because he kept 
this, this, these videos are all from this year, from interviews, right? He kept mentioning her, and this is just three instances, but there are more instances where he mentions this essay. Um, so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what he was trying to say uh, with uh, when he mentions specifically the ethics of emergencies, this essay. So um, he, it, it's unclear to me still what he's trying to say exactly with the ethics of emergencies, uh, citing the ethics of emergencies in this way, because he's asked about it when he's asked when he was asked about his plans for uh, for for government, and he was asked about the welfare state, and specifically some welfare programs that directly essentially put money on people's uh, pockets without uh, anything in exchange, essentially, right? which is the way that a lot of big, big percentage of the Argentinian population survives. So he's asked, will you do away with those? Because, you know, these welfare programs, you're against the welfare state, so what are you going to do? So what he says in response to that is, we're going to apply what Ayn Rand calls the ethics of emergencies. And then he goes on to talk, what I interpret that he says is that he sees this situation of people being so poor and out of a job and all of that as an emergency. So in because it's an emergency, government has to keep uh, keep up these, these welfare programs because otherwise people would starve essentially. So he's saying we cannot do we cannot take away the welfare immediately. We need to do it very slowly because you know the ethics of emergencies. Now that is uh, very misguided and completely wrong view of what this essay is about. I'm not sure why he likes it, so likes to quote it so much. That is not what the essay is about at all. It's starting with the fact that the essay is about ethics and relationship between human beings, not between the state or the government and individuals. A lot more to say, I discussed with uh, Maria Marti, my colleague from the Amazon Latin America for about an hour about this. Uh, but yeah, it clearly shows that he, this, part of the philosophy he's not understanding very well, it seems. Ben. So, Augustina, yeah, I think that's definitely a, a misinterpretation of that essay. It's not that uh, Ayn Rand would have disagreed that if you're going to reform uh, the government and work to eliminate the welfare state, that uh, she wouldn't disagree that you need some kind of transitional measures that you don't just eliminate every program overnight. Uh, but right. that's certainly not what she's talking about in that essay. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, his attempt to bring that in as the re as the justification for the transition makes me think that he's got a very different way of thinking about morality uh, than she does. But we should talk about his kind of overall ideological principles more, not just his moral, but his political views and the way that he takes all these different influences, whether Rothbard or Rand, tries to put them together into a political philosophy. What is, what is the way he summarizes this? What's his motto? So Millet's motto that he repeats all the time, and is in the first paragraph of, of his official electoral platform, um, he talks about liberalism. And liberalism means, for the American audience, means classical liberalism and libertarianism, right? So. He says, and I quote, liberalism is the unrestricted respect for other people's life project based on the non-aggression principle and the defense of the right to life, liberty, and property. Its fundamental institutions are the market, free from government intervention, free trade, division of labor, and social cooperation. He repeats this also in his book, and this is a definition by uh, Benegas Lynch Hijo. Uh, it's one uh, an intellectual from Argentina, libertarian. So this is what he this is what what his motto is, and what he wants to get through to to the audience. And I think one thing to note about that platform statement is just how abstract it is, and abstractions can be super ambiguous in their meaning really depending on how you flesh them out, how you end up relating them to uh, concrete policy stances. So there's a lot of language about life, liberty, and property, but 
what is a human life? Is it the life of a rational, productive adult? Is it the life of a fetus or an embryo? That's a pretty important question to be able to answer when, for example, you're taking a position on the abortion controversy, which he does, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, what is property? Is property something that can only be owned by individuals or can it be owned by the state? Is it something that requires uh, constant presence, as the Georgists say, uh, so that you, uh, you know, squatters can take over the property that others have abandoned? Or is it something that needs to be held in perpetuity uh, uh, and needs to be worked and sustained sometimes by long distance landlords? These are, these are the kinds of questions they that are not answered simply by uh, that kind of language. And so when we ask the question, is the pro-freedom rhetoric from someone like Malay evidence of an Ayn Rand connection? Well, the answer is yes and no. It's, 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 there's some connection there, but it's weak. And we've, we've seen, I think, some evidence that he's read her. We've seen some evidence that he's uh, influenced by her, that he likes some of her concepts. We don't think he fully understands them, as in the case of that uh, ethics of emergency reference. Uh, and, but there's also uh, concrete policies where we can imagine there's some influence. I think Nico's already mentioned some of them, his attitude toward the difference between the producers and the looters, uh, even perhaps his, his view about uh, technology and business and skyscrapers. And it trickles down, I think, further to uh, his views, at least on certain policy issues. And it's going to be important that this is not on all of them. And we'll talk about them later. But uh, the thing that he has made the biggest splash about in the news is his views on monetary policy, on the, the fact that uh, uh, the Argentine central bank has so manipulated the peso as to create unprecedented levels of inflation. And he wants to actually end the central bank in Argentina. He wants to abolish capital controls and he wants to replace it with competing currencies, including dollarizing the Argentine economy. And that's, that's a very radical proposal. Uh, it's something that I think uh, not all uh, uh, classical liberals or libertarians are on board with. It's definitely something that uh, Ayn Rand would have been sympathetic to. And it would be easy for him to have picked that up from reading her. It's not just in books like Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, where Alan Greenspan comments on the reasons for why we need to eliminate the central bank. You see it even in places like her novels and not the shrugged uh, in Francisco's money speech, where he talks about how whenever destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money uh, for money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. Destroyers seize gold and leave it, uh, leave to its owners a counterfeit pile of paper. And that's, that's the kind of attitude from Francisco that someone like Malay is on board with. And so, yeah, there are definitely some ideas he seems to be getting from her. He, to the extent that he seems to understand these ideas, he's able to apply them to some uh, at least fairly obvious concrete cases like monetary reform, like uh, regulatory reform, uh, certain kinds of reform, the welfare state, which is all great. But we should now transition, I think, to the aspects of his views and ideas where there is uh, incompatibility between his views and, and Ayn Rand's. And so here it's definitely important about how he himself describes himself as a, as a libertarian. So not only as a libertarian, but he describes himself as someone who ideally in theory, he would be an anarchist, but for now in practice, he's a minarchist. What is all this about? So, so yeah, he says, he has a repeatedly included in his book, he says, I am a liberal libertarian. Philosophically, I am a free market anarchist. In practice, I'm a minarchist. The way that he views government, and this becomes very evident, not just in because of the literal word he says, but the way that he gets emotional and really enraged when he talks about the state, the government. Um, he says, he, he said this in an interview and he, he said, between the mafia and the state, I prefer the mafia. The mafia has morals. The mafia delivers. The mafia doesn't lie. The mafia competes. And then 
The state is a violent organization that's worse than the mafia. The state is a robbery. The state is a lie. The state is a mechanism that benefits politicians. And the state has the monopoly of violence. It doesn't allow for competition. So this hatred, like really deep hatred that he has on, on the government and seen as like, there is no way that government can ever be good. It's a mechanism to uh, oppress people and is a mechanism of violence. This view is radically different from Ayn Rand's view, who views government as a necessary good when it is uh, circumscribed to its proper role, which is not the case in Argentina, but government does have a proper role in a free society. Ben. Yes, this is really important. And we, I, I previously mentioned that he's, that, that lofty rhetoric about freedom and property is ambiguous. Uh, ambiguous as long as it remains abstract and isn't brought down to concrete reality. And at least in some cases, it seems that he applies it in a, in a meaningfully good way. But this issue of anarchy is uh, definite evidence of non-objectivist influence, of influence from philosophers other than Ayn Rand, because this is something she would have completely repudiated. It's, I think, primarily evidence of influence by Rothbard, who we, we know is the, is the person who, the thinker who initially uh, pushed him out of his uh, left-wing Keynesian economic views. Rothbard was an anarchist of just the same stripe. And this is a really fundamental incompatibility between Rand's view of liberty and Rothbard's and, and Millet's. The question in political philosophy of whether we should have a government or not is the most fundamental question you can uh, differ over. I mean, you can, there, there are differences between those who say we should have this kind of government and that kind of government. But when you think you shouldn't have one at all, you just don't get bigger differences than that. And so this is one of the reasons, and Nikos and I talked about this in a previous podcast that we'll let you know about at the end, but this is one of the reasons why Ayn Rand didn't consider herself to be a libertarian, because the libertarian movement attempted to package together these pro-freedom and pro-anarchy views, that you don't properly package together views that differ on such a fundamental issue. So there's that point just about she wouldn't have agreed with Rothbard. She isn't a libertarian to the extent Malay is one. She wouldn't agree with him either and wouldn't class herself with him. Um, there's also just the quality of his reasoning for this position. So if you look at this economist interview that a number of us looked at, where he explains why he thinks the state is so bad, why he thinks the state is necessarily a criminal and like unto the mafia, although not even as good as the mafia, interestingly. Here's the argument that he gives. The state finances itself with taxes, I'm quoting here, and taxes clearly are called that way because they are not voluntary. So the state is an apparatus of coercion which has a monopoly on force, and like everything that has a monopoly of a legal nature, it always ends up causing damage. So he's right, of course, that the state is a monopoly on force, but it, it is a completely invalid inference to say, therefore, uh, the state is necessarily criminal, therefore, the state is violent. It's possible to maintain a monopoly on force where all you're doing is using force and retaliation against those who would initiate it. And the idea that government has to be funded by taxes, which are a form of initiation of force, is a fallacy that Ayn Rand herself exploded uh, in her essay, Government Financing in a Free Society. She argues it's possible for a government to be voluntarily financed and for it still to be a government. And of course, she thinks it's important that there be a government with a monopoly on force, where it restricts itself to using force and retaliation. Because Augustina, as you mentioned, government, in her view, isn't a necessary evil, it's a necessary good. I just wanna read one more passage uh, from Ayn Rand where she, where she explains a bit about why this is the case. Uh, she says, the possibility of human immorality is not the only objection to anarchy. Even a society whose every member were fully rational and faultlessly moral could not function in a state of anarchy. It is the need of objective laws and of an arbiter for honest disagreements among men that necessitates the establishment of a government. And so while it's true that, I mean, Millet doesn't claim to be an objectivist, so it's not like 
uh, he's misrepresenting himself as agreeing with Ayn Rand on this issue where he doesn't. He is still trying to be a member of this big tent libertarian movement, which is trying to uh, graft together really actually opposing intellectual forces. The, 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 those, those liberal thinkers like Rand and Mises and Bastiat, who really did believe in individual freedom and protecting individual freedom with the government, and those like Rothbard and, and other anarchists who think we shouldn't have any, any government at all, a view that Rand thinks is ultimately, ultimately anathema to liberty. And to the extent that he continues to try to push these together with his policies, and we'll have to see whether that's true, whether he's trying to, uh, that's, a, that's a big problem. Just a quick comment here. So coming from a country like Argentina, coming from Greece, when I first heard of Ayn Rand's idea that the state is a necessary good, I couldn't understand it. And the idea that, look, I've known the state from the beginning of my life to being this despotic force, this, this, this destructive force, I can understand why for someone who is relatively new to these ideas, it might make sense to say, okay, if the market is good at everything, then the market could also be good at violence and that the state cannot be good because it's, uh, I cannot even fathom how this could be the case. So it took me years and in diving into political philosophy to get the point that, yeah, the state is, is a necessary good, not in the way that the, the state as it is today, but the state in terms of giving you through the monopoly of force and through an objective law, the space and the field through which you can exercise your freedom. So Millet is not a political philosopher, so who knows? He's in a process of discovering. Let's hope that maybe he could improve his understanding on this topic. But just saying it's not the easiest topic for someone to grasp, and particularly for someone who is not into political, uh, political philosophy. But let's go to another topic which is quite also... Uh, quite big and many people talk about it, which is his stance on uh, the issue of abortion. So, Agustina, Actually, what is Nikos, his take Nikos, before we do that, there's, there's one yeah. last important thing, I think, to say about his anarchism. Um, and that's that the best I think you could say in defense of him here is that, and he's quoted as saying this in that, in that economist interview, that he's a free market anarchist in theory, but a minarchist, in other words, someone who thinks there should be a minimum government is the term that libertarians use in practice. And so you might say, well, he doesn't really mean uh, anything practical by his anarchism. It's just a, a theory he plays around with. But it's, it's also important that in that same interview, he talks about the transitional measures that he wants to enact are transitions toward his ideal. And he states his ideal is a complete state of anarchy. And that's important. Like the theory is what guides the practice if you take the theory seriously. And he seems that he, it seems he does take that theory seriously. And even though I'm sure there are many kinds of programs he wants to dismantle that should be dismantled, it's dangerous to dismantle without a view toward what you're trying to accomplish and without taking the necessary measures. Part of what I'm saying here is that the mere fact that he's going to dismantle bad programs if he succeeds in doing it is not an unalloyed good if there's no plan for where they're going. And the, the important historical precedent here is Eastern Europe and, and the Soviet bloc, where there was all kinds of dismantling of uh, socialist programs, privatization of industries, uh, elimination of various uh, authoritarian institutions. And at the time this was happening in the 1990s, um, a lot of people in the West were very optimistic, thinking this means that we've reached the end of history, capitalism has triumphed. Of course, we now know this was not the case. We know that Russia very quickly, within just a couple of decades, returned to its authoritarian roots. Not only uh, because it didn't embrace the philosophical foundations that were necessary for understanding and valuing freedom, but even also just because the, the necessary political institutions had not been created that would allow for 
peace and freedom and stability. It's not enough just to tear down bad institutions. You have to build up good ones. You have to build up robust systems of private property and establish respect for the rule of law. None of this was done in the Soviet bloc. And unless Millet is working to do that in Argentina, just tearing down bad institutions isn't going to magically transform Argentina into uh, a, a country filled with peace and prosperity. So now I think, yeah, we should, we should talk about his position on abortion, because this is uh, an example where we see, again, I think some of the, the worst abstractions winning out uh, in relation to the concrete. So Augustina, what can you tell us about his views on abortion? So Millet is opposed to abortion. Um, he thinks he, he's very much against it when confronted with the f people say, okay, but like, look, some of the things you like, including Ayn Rand were for abortion. He essentially said, well, she's wrong. Um, she's, he says part of, you know, life, liberty, property, the life part includes protecting the fetus. So what he wants to do is put up abortion because it is legal to get an abortion in Argentina up to 14 weeks. So what he wants, what he said he wants to do is to put up abortion rights on a referendum and let people decide whether abortion should be legal or not. However, yesterday it made the headlines that one of the, one of his congressmen, elected congressman, he said that uh, he wants to introduce a bill to uh, repel abortion rights and calls abortion a savage practice. So it seems that abortion rights could be in, in danger in Argentina if Millet and his party would get their way. Ben, you've written a book on the topic. Any comments? Yes. So I think this is the leading piece of evidence of his failure to grasp Ayn Rand's ideas. I think that there are other ideas of hers that he has grasped, at least her ideas on certain kind of uh, concrete policy questions. But the level of disagreement here on the issue of abortion, I think, cuts to the core of his failure to understand at least her idea of what individual liberty and freedom and rights are all about. So as, as you mentioned, Augustina, his pushback is to say, well, Rand was wrong about abortion because she didn't believe in the right to life or the liberty uh, of the fetus. But the idea that a fetus could have rights or let, let alone rights to liberty is uh, a profound misunderstanding of not just Rand's, but I think also the European Enlightenment idea of what individual rights are all about. Individual rights are about the freedom of the individual mind, the importance of living as an individual in a society, in a social context, uh, where you need to be free to think and produce in order to live. The paradigm case of a rights holder in this view is an adult human being. And to the extent that laws against abortion infringe on the rights of women, adult women, uh, to choose how to live their own lives, they are obvious paradigm cases of the violation of the kind of liberty that matters in this tradition. And when it's said that they're, well, but they're in the name of the life and the liberty of the fetus, the fetus is alive, but it's not, it doesn't have the kind of life that rights are there to protect. It doesn't have the distinctively human kind of life, the life of the thinking producing being that enlightenment rights are there to protect. It certainly doesn't it's not meaningful even to speak of its liberty because liberty presupposes that you're making choices. Uh, fetuses don't, but adult human females certainly do. And I'll just mention one more quotation from Ayn Rand from her speech at the Ford Hall Forum in 1976, where she expresses her view of uh, American conservatives who are against abortion rights. And here she's speaking about how this is one reason I'm against Ronald Reagan. That so-and-so claiming to be a defender of capitalism and Americanism has come out against abortion. If he doesn't respect so fundamental a right, he cannot be a defender of any kind of rights. And I think that is often true of 
many other politicians who are against abortion rights. Just one comment here. So both of you understand the issue of abortion. You've, you've driven deeper into the philosophy of it. But something that I don't understand is how someone could say, let's decide it through a referendum. Because to me, there are only three possible takes. One is, I haven't decided, so I need to think better. The other is, it is a right. And if it is a right, the government has a duty to defend it. You cannot say, yeah, it's a right, but let's put it on vote. And if indeed someone thinks that abortion is, is murder, how does it make sense as a libertarian say, let the states decide or put it to a referendum? So whatever your take is on abortion, this idea that we should vote on it never made sense, uh, never made sense to me. And I cannot understand how a politician who claims to be motivated by principles can say, well, this topic is difficult. Let's put it on a, let's put it on a referendum. Anyway, so... Let's, let's say something very quick about the prospects, Agustina. We've seen in the past that whenever there was a government that tried to do some radical uh, reforms, particularly towards the direction of freedom, there was massive uh, backlash. The obvious example is Margaret Thatcher in the UK, where there was almost a low-level civil war by the trade unions. There was even an assassination attempt by the IRA. So it was... It was a brutal, brutal, brutal opposition. And in a country with such a tradition of uh, statist policies and with so many institutional players, like trade unions, uh, political parties, having stakes for Millet to fail, future is not going to be easy for him, right? Yes, I, th I think I agree with that. And I think even if he, if he tries to... Uh implement good policies if he appeals to the best ideas that he actually holds or the best influences he will face a lot of political and cultural opposition because let's remember like what i said earlier argentina did not vote for capitalism he voted against socialism those two things are very different it's like i don't want to continue with what we just had i want something else but what that something else is they didn't vote for a positive. So there is not support for capitalism in Argentina, but uh, rejection of socialism. And Argentina is still collectivistic, still holds like this altruist morality. So it's going to be a very hard road uh, for Millet to, to implement these ideas. And also, again, he, he is mixed, right? So he's, he himself doesn't have all the right ideas. He, and also one thing that worries me is he has surrounded himself with a lot of people that are very, that have really, really bad ideas, who I hope cannot influence him. Yeah, I think that's the thing to, to focus on. Uh, we know he changed his mind late in life. He's going to learn a lot by being president of such a large country. Uh, we hope he learns uh, more about the ideas of liberty and what makes them possible as he goes forward. And we can hope that the ideas of uh, people like Rand and Bastiat and Mises win out over the ideas of Rothbard, who I think is opposed to them. And it, if, he, if he did uh, start to make some meaningful change in Argentina by not only abolishing bad institutions, but building up good ones, it could really create a great example for the world. Uh, where, uh, especially in Latin America, where so many other countries have gone the way of the left, are headed toward Venezuela, and nobody seems to be paying attention to the fact that Venezuela has become a complete ba basket case. So, I mean, I wish him the best of luck. Yeah, I do too. Like to as an Argentinian, yeah, I as an Argentinian myself, obviously, I really hope he does well, and he has this unique historical opportunity in Latin America that won't repeat itself to show that freedom works, but he has to implement the actual ideas of freedom. So part of it is not just because of the consequences in people's lives, right? but if he fails in his project because he doesn't implement the actual ideas of freedom, he will tarnish this, the actual free market ideas, ideas of freedom forever, essentially, and people in Latin America will come to reject them. And then we are doomed for another hundred years, probably. So in, in every sense, hoping he really, and for every possible hoping he really is able to implement the right ideas. Right. So 
some relevant resources on the topic. So some months ago, we did with Ben a whole discussion on libertarianism. Is it a coherent movement? Is there a big tent? Is it a big mess? So you can go and check it out. Also, Agustina has written commentary on what is the hope for Latin America, a new ideal for Latin America. You can find it on our website. Also, we are bringing uh, back every month one Q&A episode. And this is going to be a Q&A on questions about the philosophy of objectivism. Now, notice, if you want to send your question, this episode has its own email. So its email is experts at einrand.org. Experts at einrand.org. And, of course, if you appreciate what we're doing, and we really appreciate that you're with us, we appreciate your time, we appreciate how our videos have been doing much better lately, and thank you for sharing the word. So make sure, if you took value from this, to like, subscribe, share, you know the drill. Also, if you have suggestions for topics or if you have general questions, you can email it to us to newideal at einrand.org, newideal einrand.org. We'll read your questions and if there's a topic which is of interest, we will proceed with it and maybe we'll answer your question in one of the future Q&As. So, many thanks for your time, many thanks to Ben, many thanks to Agustina, best of luck to Argentina in this new page in its history. See you soon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.